Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Well, guys, as Jason mentioned, this is a family service, and we've got Amelia Averett here today, and she's going to read uh, our, present, our, our current passage to us and over us. And as she does so, know that uh, these words were inspired by the Spirit of Christ, and they come to us as if Jesus himself is standing before you today and saying these words over all of us. Amelia. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Thank you. Great job. Thanks, Amelia. Y'all clap it up for Amelia for coming up here and doing that. <laughs> Takes a lot of courage to get in front of this tough crowd, uh, even for an adult. Um, I'm joking. Hey, uh, parents, um, we provided to you in the little blue baggie that you got on the way in a worksheet for the sermon. And so we, we hope that this is a way that can kind of engage the heart and the mind of your child as we work through this sermon. I know they're probably not used to sitting through a 35-minute oration. Uh, but uh, right here, you've got some important things like their name, the date, the pastor's name. My name is Blake Rogers that you could fill out there. The number of times that the pastor says God, so on and so forth. There's even a little a word search uh, for some of the words from 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. So just pull that out and uh, make that as useful as you can uh, during this time. Uh, as Jason mentioned, one of the pastors here, if I haven't met you yet, would love to meet you afterwards. It's a pleasure to be here to share uh, from 2 Timothy uh, with you all. I want to introduce you. If you haven't, if you don't know this guy, a, a guy named William Tyndall. Um, you may be familiar with a guy named William Tyndall. He's a guy, an important guy for ch- from church history. Um, in the 1500s, uh, William Tyndall was really viewed as the captain of the reformers. You see, William Tyndall uh, lived in a day where he did not have access to God's word in his common language, the English language. Um, the, the Bibles in that day were primarily written in Latin, and the churches of the day, uh, Tyndall believed, had corrupted the gospel. And he didn't view it to be a very good thing that the common people not to have the word of God uh, in their homes and in their hands, in their common language, so that they could read it uh, for themselves. It was by learning the Greek language uh, under the study of a man named Erasmus that Tyndall came to understand what it really meant to be saved by grace through faith alone. And he knew that everyone needed to know this because this was the power unto salvation. And so Tyndall embarked on this journey. Um, And keep in mind, the church powers at the time were quite, um, they were powerful. Okay, they they had a lot of sway over government. In fact, uh, the, the Church of England was the state church and it had been guilty of abusing the scriptures and withholding truth uh, from the people. Uh, There would be monetary schemes that the churches would embark upon in order to to get the governmental funds needed, in order to have a a, a functioning society. Tyndall opposed this. Um, But as he began to translate and as he began to dispense the word of God in common language in Europe and in England, uh, the, the, the church authorities uh, were not happy. He was, he was dubbed as a heretic, and he was strangled, 
and burned at the stake. The question is this, why would he do that? Why would William Tyndall risk his life? Why would he flee from country to country to region to region um, under the radar just to have God's word in the common language of the people? Well, what Tyndall believed is what we're here to study today is that all scripture is God-breathed. There have been many people like Tyndall who have gone from their lands into hostile environments to proclaim the message of the gospel, to share God's word with people and have risked their lives to do the same, all because they believe that this book, the book that you hold in your hand, the book that often sometimes way too casually sits on our desk at our home or on the nightstand, this book is a book that people died for all throughout church history to preserve. This is a very unique book, but it is such an important book because it is the very breath of God. This morning, I want to invite you to consider uh, from our present passage three things that, about this book. Uh, together, we're going to look at uh, three things that we have up on a slide here. The nature of this book, the benefits of this book, and then finally, we'll look at the purpose of this book. So consider with me the nature of this book. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. The very nature of this book is that it is the exhale of God. Now, how do we know that? Well, Paul is very intentional in his writing to Timothy here uh, to explain God's word. Notice, he says all scripture. What is he referring to as all scripture? It's in Greek, it says posographe, it means all of the writings. So what were the writings that Timothy had received to this point? Well, certainly they were the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is the inspired, the exhaled word of God for humans. He, he reveals himself to us through uh, the Old Testament. Certainly, um, many of the oral traditions and even this letter that Paul was writing to Timothy, ought to be viewed as the very exhale of God. Again, Paul was an apostle. He viewed himself as such. He was commissioned by Christ himself. And this letter to Timothy, Paul knew that this would be a letter for all time that the Spirit would use to encourage the churches. All Scripture is God-breathed. This God-breathed term is, is a term called theonoustos. And so I think it's up here. I know this is a little bit like a nerdy-ish, but it's really important. You know, the Bible didn't come to us in the English language. William Tyndall worked hard for that to happen. It came to us in uh, the Greek language, Corne Greek language, and, and at least the New Testament did. And, and this word theonoustos, theos referring to God, noustos, it's really a pneumatic term that refers to breathing. It is literally as if God was breathing out, and this was exactly what he breathed, this word of God. It is the exhale of God. This is why I stood before you a moment ago and said, before Amelia read the passage, that this, this book, the, these words were inspired by the Spirit of Christ. And as such, as we read them together, they are as if Jesus were standing before us today, and they come to us with the same kind of authority and power as if he was directly speaking these words to us. This is a deeply held truth that we as a church family affirm. These words are God-breathed. But they're God-breathed in two ways, I think. They're God-breathed in first their form, 
and they're God-breathed in their function. So form and function. And I'd like for you to consider um, this with me uh, as, as we continue. Uh, who wrote this letter to Timothy? Come on, crowd interaction. Who? I like it. Good job. Who wrote the Gospel of Luke? Luke. Uh, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? Okay, all right. So there were actual human authors who coined and wrote these letters. Is that what you're saying to me? That's what we're saying together. That's right. There were actual human authors who wrote these books. But what then is the Bible? The Bible is the God-breathed, or as the uh, New American Standard Bible translate this, it is the inspired word of God. What, I'm, what we're getting at here is the dual authorship of the Bible. The Bible was written, yes, by humans, but it was inspired fully by God. And we'll talk more about what this looks like. How did this happen? Well, church history has largely explained uh, this in a couple of terms, and uh, one that we'll consider a little further, um, concurrence or compatibilism, meaning that as these men were carried throughout their lives, they had the experiences that God had, pl had sovereignly placed them in. He had moved in their hearts to write exactly as they did. And yet, this was the word that would last forevermore. These were not just human words. They were inspired words. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy says this. or It holds to what's called the verbal plenary, plenary theory. I know this is a lot of technical kind of stuff, but it's helpful. It's helpful. It, and, and it defines it this way. The verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture refers to this, the extending of God's superintendence of the writing of Scripture down to the very choice of words, not merely to overarching themes or concepts, that is, the whole of Scripture in all of its parts down to the very words of the original were inspired by God. God ordained and called humans to write the exact words that he would choose to reveal himself to us. This is no casual book. This is the most important book ever produced. And it's unique. The Bible is unlike any, any book in world history. It was written over a period of, of 2,000 years by 40 different authors on three different continents who wrote in three different languages. This, this, is, this is your Bible. These facts alone make it one of a kind, but that's not all. There were shepherds, there were kings, there were scholars, fishermen, prophets, a military general, a cupbearer, and a priest who penned portions of the scriptures. They had different immediate purposes. So they were writing to real people in real situations, uh, whether recording history or giving spiritual moral instruction or pronouncing judgment. They composed their works from all kinds of places, from palaces to prisons, the wilderness, the places of exile, while writing history, law, prophet, proverbs. And in the process, they laid bare their, even their very own emotions, frustrations, joy, and love. And despite all of this, God in his sovereignty orchestrated this Bible to be the exact revelation of himself for humanity. What Paul is getting at here for Timothy is that he does not want him to waver and he does not want him to question what life is actually really about. What he's saying is, Timothy, as you elder the church, be sure that you proclaim 
the direct and inspired revelation of God to the people, for that is where true life is found. And we need to be reminded of this. Um, if you look at 2 Timothy three or 4, in verses 3 through 4, which I think we have a slide here, uh, we need to be reminded of this because just like in Timothy's day, we also live in a day where this is true. For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. A time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to do what? To suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We live in that day. Uh, we need to be reminded of this. Uh, we, we live in a day, we live in a city where the word of God and the way that Paul is writing about it here is not upheld, where it is challenged, where it is questioned, um, where it is subject to philosophy and human reason instead of allowing the Bible to chasten human reason and philosophy. We live in a day much like Timothy lived in. And you and I are not so spiritual that we are immune from our minds drifting off into these very own philosophies. We're not. And so we need to return to the scriptures. Our very own church confession about the Bible. I think this is helpful to consider. If you're a member here, this is what you have agreed to uh, in the covenant. Our very own confession is this. We believe that the Bible was written by divinely inspired men under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is infallible, inerrant, and the final authority for Christian beliefs and living. This is what we believe as a church family because this is what we need as a church family. We need to know the unfiltered, disclosed Lord of the universe. We uphold both the Old and the New Testaments because in them we discover that God is a God of creation who's holy sovereign. We discover that God is a God who is holy, who requires perfect behavior in accordance to his law. But we also see that God is a God of grace and mercy. We need to be reminded of this because of our very day. We also need to be reminded of this because our very hearts seek alternate narratives. So long as you live in this world, you will be engaged in the battle of um, the mind. Okay? There is the course of the world and there is the course of the kingdom of Christ. And these two courses have very much competing narratives. The course of the world compels you to trust in that which you can touch, see, and feel. The course of Christ compels you to trust that God, the Bible, that God has revealed himself most supremely in the person and work of Jesus. And life gains great significance and meaning. And you actually understand what you were created for when you have faith and trust that which you do not see. We are all susceptible to pursuing the narratives of status, of wealth, of passions, the passions of the flesh. We're all susceptible to these things, to fame and beauty, and look to these things for our own significance. Again, this is not all that different from Timothy's day. In 2 Timothy 3, just before this passage, we read this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people, keep in mind, when you read the Bible and uh, sinners are kind of pointed out as a, as, and, and described, it's not so that uh, you can look at them and say, oh my gosh, what idiots. 
The point is that you would see yourself in this because we're in this as well. All right. So four people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That's you and I. Uh, we, we were of that category before Christ called us into his kingdom. We still, in the kingdom of Christ, very often get pulled and tugged towards the kingdom of the earth. And we too need to be reminded, just as Timothy did, who was an elder who had been trained up under the tutelage of Paul, the apostle, he needed to be reminded of this because Timothy is also susceptible to going such a way. So we need this. We need this passage because of our current context and, and the cultures and in, in the culture around us. But we also need it because of our very own hearts. We need to be reminded that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But with Christ, we are accepted in the eyes of a holy and sovereign God. But there's another reason why we need this. We need this because of what comes next in Paul's letter, that there are benefits to this book. Okay? There are benefits to this book. So if you look with me as we continue on in uh, verse 16, all scripture is God breathed out by God and profitable, profitable meaning uh, not for monetary gain, obviously, but for uh, meaning that the the scriptures are not necessarily um, the end in themselves, right? The, The scriptures serve a purpose. They're profitable for something, okay? They're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And I'd like for us to consider really two of these things uh, together. I I think that the teaching aspect here and the correction aspect here, as I studied this passage, really uh, serves to point us towards right doctrine, okay? The, the, The scripture is profitable for teaching and correction, meaning you come to a right understanding of who God is, the God of the universe, the right understanding of who God is by submitting yourselves to them and studying them. And this is very important. A.W. Tozer famously uh, wrote this in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me just read that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If you want to know what life is about, know who God is. If you want to live a life that's full of flourishing no matter your circumstance, come to know the God who's in sovereign control and who works all things for the good of those who trust in him. If you want to live a fulfilled life, have right doctrine. The Bible is good for that. And guys, listen, there's a lot of stuff out there, right? There's a lot of books out there um, that you should read. You know, this could be... Uh, the 12 Rules by jo- Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. This could be The Shack. This could be Girl, Wipe Your Face. This could be any, any number of these books. That's a real book. That's a real book. It, it's, it's, wash Your Face. All right. That, all right. You got me. You got me. It was wrong in the notes. All right. It's wrong in the notes. It could be Girl, Wash Your Face. See, you guys know this. All right. Y'all, y'all know, but listen, 
There's a lot of stuff out there that seeks to promote a worldview. And what you have to do as a Christian, as someone who upholds the Bible as the very breath of God, what you have to do is, yes, engage with these writings, but chasten them according to the scriptures. And you'll never be able to do it if you don't have a healthy diet of reading the Bible. You'll never be able to do it. You will drift off into myths as the people uh, in Timothy's church, churches, were very susceptible to doing. We have to be a people of this book. We have to be a people who studies it, who loves it, and who seeks to hold one another accountable to the right doctrine put forward in this book. There's another benefit, a couple of benefits to this book, okay? Reproof and training in righteousness. This likely refers to instructing towards right conduct. You know, whenever we're introduced to anything in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, what do we see? We see God who stands satisfied, who stands outside of creation, who speaks when he opens his mouth. Okay, when he exhales, what happens? Order, creation, substance out of nothingness. The planets swing into orbit in this beautiful thing that we enjoy every day called the universe and the earth and life and breath and all therein is created by the breath of God. We see in, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, you, you see God creating Adam out of what? Dirt. And what does God do to this dirt that he forms? He breathes onto it. And what does it say? This text says that it, that he has life, that he is brought forward into life. When, the, when God opens his mouth and when his exhale goes forth, things change, right? Things change. Not a one of us are here because we have uh, achieved righteousness. Not one of us are. If you think you are, if you, if you think that you've come to church because this is another like tally in the big like quadrant of good and bad of your life for the positive side that you think God one day will look on you because in, in favor because you have more tallies in the positive behavior side of things than the negative, then you're wrong. Not a single one of us have come to this place or come to God because of our own works of righteousness. No, every single one of us who come to Christ do so because we see that Christ has achieved what we ought to have done and by our faith in him, we're united to him and we have fellowship to God. We're drawn towards him in that way. That's how we come into this place. Well, the scriptures, according to Paul, are good for that. Uh, preaching this, this is why we, we want to preach the scriptures. And you as our church family, you need to hold us accountable to always preaching the word and nothing else. It's good it, because when God's voice, whenever his exhale goes forth, change happens. And this is also not just cosmic change. This is personal change. This is conduct change. If you've got besetting sin in your life, see what the Bible has to say about it. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to do that. You can, you can look at, you know, some proof text, meaning, you know, if you've got a problem stealing, yes, go to the Ten Commandments, and you see God's command that you should not steal. Um, but also look to the whole narrative of Scripture and find yourself in it. See that you've stolen. Acknowledge it. And find yourself in the story of a God who created all things, and that's, that's quite interesting. And, and as creator, he's the owner, the ruler 
of all things, and he has a design by which his creation should function. Okay, we see that we've broken that. Okay, now that we see, okay, we identify with Adam in that we have fallen, and then you see the whole narrative of Scripture. What happens, there's a journey from Adam to Christ where human beings seek to work their way to God, and they're just not good enough. But what God was seeking to do all along was to reveal that you could never come to him on your own terms. You only come to God through Christ and find yourself in the narrative. By doing so, you will grow in righteousness. You will grow when you allow the exhale of God to to come to bear uh, on your life. And really, in as much as we are a church family that centers our lives on the word of God, We will do well to hold one another accountable to that. You shouldn't just do this in isolation, is my point. Uh, You should have real relationships. The the Bible was never meant to be read and studied in a cold, dark room at a dimly lit desk. It was meant to be studied in community. It was. And there may be people in here who your Christian life is um, just coming to church. And if that's you, we are so glad you are here. That is a great step because here at Christ's covenant, you're going to sit under the preaching of God's word. And that is a grace to you. However, that's not all. We have a lot of things going on throughout the week. We've got deep relationships that are happening all throughout the city that help hold us accountable to the truth that we affirm here. And we invite you to be a part of not just this, but the word going forth throughout the week in in accountable relationships and friendships together. That's what we're here for. I have known many people to go through seminary. And we have all known many pastors who mastered the word, who knew the word, and yet had moral failures. Why is this? Because it's not just good enough to have right doctrine. It's not. You have to have right behavior. Right doctrine produces right behavior when it's rightly understood. Many have sought, and I've been in this category, to master the scriptures instead of allowing the scripture to master them. And let that not be true of us. Uh, There are benefits to this book. And finally, there's a deep purpose uh, to this book that Paul puts forward in verse 17 of chapter 3. He goes on to say that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Um, This idea of completeness uh, carries the idea of being thoroughly furnished um, or equipped, wholeness, uh, kind of reality here. The the word of God is is intended to make you whole, to make you complete. And if you're like me, um, you you know, I put this coat on so that I would kind of hide behind it a little bit because I don't always feel super equipped and complete. I'm very keenly aware of my insufficiencies And probably, if we're really honest, many of you throughout the week and maybe even this morning, uh, you you came in and uh, or you live your life and you're very keenly aware of the fact that you are not whole yet, that you have insufficiencies. And so much of our lives are spent trying to put the pieces back together, right? So we perceive that we have an insufficiency and we go pick up a book. Um, that addresses it, and then we read it. This could be any kind of self-help book. This could be literature. This could be the Bible. You know, we, we, we are keenly aware of our insufficiencies. Or, you know what? We don't like how we look, and so we go get a haircut. Or, like, we don't like how we look, so you, like, try to grow the scraggly beard, 
or something like that. You, you, you know, you, you try to do any number of different things to try to make yourself just feel right, just feel whole. All the while, what Paul is putting forward is true. The Word of God makes you complete. The Word of God does this, that you would do something. But we've got to be, you know, honest with ourselves too, that our definition for what it means or feels like to be complete also has to be the same definition that God understands as what it means to be complete. And Paul defines that for us here. Completeness is this. You ready? You want to feel complete when you leave this place? That you would be equipped for every good work. This is what it means to be complete. That you would rightly understand who God is. So much so that you wouldn't have just an intellectual knowledge of, of who he is. That you wouldn't just have some memory verses um, in, the, in the bank just in case, you know, you need to look righteous in front of a crowd of Christians. You know, rather that you actually believe this book and that you believe it so much so that it is changing uh, your life. And when that happens, the, the mystery of the gospel in our lives is this, that as we put our faith and hope in Christ, gratitude wells up within us and thankfulness for what he's done for us, that we are compelled towards good works and love for others. This is the hope of the gospel. Matthew 5, 16 says this, in the same way, this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in the same way, let your light shine before others so what they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. For whatever reason, God bound his glory to you and I submitting ourselves to the scriptures and out of a love for other people doing good works. You are a part of the story that God has written in his writing. He, his glory is on the line. And your happiness and meaningfulness in life is on the line as well. We were not called to a let go and let God theology. You were saved to actually do something. Meaning, when you leave this place, when you wake up in the morning, and you go out into the world, your heart's posture and your actions should be towards good for others. That by doing so, your Father may be glorified. We so often fail at this. And our only hope is not that we would get that perfectly from now on. Our only hope is that we would continually trust in the one who gave his full life every day, every moment toward the glory of God and the good of others. That is our true hope in this life. And as we kind of like close up shop here, I just want to address a few different kinds of people who may be in the room, all right? There's, there's all kinds of people in the room. There's, you know, the categories of, of, of people in the Bible are those who are Christians who have submitted themselves to the kingdom of Christ and those who are not, those who continue to follow the course of the world. There's, there's two, you know, everybody falls into one of those two categories. But first, um, I want to address those who maybe have a low view of Scripture, a low view of Scripture. And now, in reality, many of us have a much lower view of Scripture than we would like to think, okay? And this is, this is very clear to see. And here's the test. Do you read your Bible? Do you, do you really believe this is God's exhale, the God of the universe who created all things? Do you really believe it? Do you really understand that this is unlike any book that's ever been written and that people 
actually died so that it could be passed down to you. Men like William Tyndall and others. Do you really believe this? This is no insignificant book. This book doesn't belong closed. This book belongs to be open in community together, and it deserves our full attention. But there are many of us, maybe in the room, several of us, who are just skeptics of the Bible. You have followed the course of the world, and you believe, you know, kind of enlightenment theory, downline stuff, where you subject the truth of Scripture, the words of Scripture, to human reason and philosophy instead of vice versa. And that has produced in you just a low view of the Scriptures. It's a helpful book, maybe, uh, but certainly not a book to, to base your life on, and certainly not a book to, um, that, that gives full direction to your decision-making and all of these things. Well, there was a skeptic uh, named Voltaire. Many of you may know who this guy is. He's a famous French Enlightenment philosopher. He wrote, this guy wrote over 20,000 letters, um, and he wrote over 2,000 books and pamphlets. This was a major, you know, pub, widely published guy, uh, and he predicted this about the Bible. He said, A hundred years from my death, the Bible will be but a museum piece. And he wrote that, or said that, in 1778. The Bible is still here. Uh, churches still gather. Uh, the Word of God is still being proclaimed. Uh, we're part of a mission-sending agency that has 5,000 missionaries all around the world seeking to proclaim the gospel. Uh, he was skeptical of it. He thought that a book rooted in, in a trust in God who couldn't be touched, felt, or seen had no relevance in this world. And yet, Voltaire was wrong. And so, if you find yourself like Voltaire, kind of a skeptic, maybe a friend brought you here, or maybe you have friends who fall into this category, encourage them to engage with the truth. Not just read it, like I mentioned earlier, in a dimly lit, cold room at a desk alone, but rather engage it in community, uh, because that is how it ought to be studied. There's also groups of, you know, maybe a classification of people in the room who had a high view of Scripture, okay? So this is the kind of person who, like Timothy, because of his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, raised him to know the Scriptures. And yet, he finds, we find ourselves in times where like, we look back on our lives and we say, you know what, I used to really like the Bible. I used to get fired up for the Bible, and I used to return to it. But now, like, ugh, they keep talking about field guides up here and, and they keep telling me that I should be in a community group and I got to be prepared when I show up. But this is drudgery, but I'm just going to do it anyways because, you know, I'm just here. Um, there, there's that category of person as well. And ultimately, I've been there. Like, I'll just tell you, being real honest, like, I have been there. And that's a tough journey. That is a tough journey uh, to be on. You're held within this balance of which of the narratives are true. You like to be, you're a middle kind of person. You like to be in the middle. You're not wanting to be super disruptive. You, you try to hedge your bets and all this kind of stuff. Is the course of Christ true or is the course of this world true? And you're here locked in this moment, in, in this dispassionate uh, life where you don't return to the scriptures. And quite simply, without consistent, consistently sitting under the breath of God, you will always teeter between faith and unbelief. You will. There's no other way. There's no other way. The, the, the narrative and course of this world is so strong that if you're not consistently 
sitting under the breath of God, the word of God, you will teeter between faith and unbelief. And you won't be as useful for good works and therefore the glory of God. So pursue it. Pursue relationships within this family that will pull you out of that because we believe that if you do, God will light a fire under you uh, so that you would return, that you would have deep confidence in what God is doing and has done in the word. In the word. Um, and then there's a third category of people, and those are those of us who actually do study God's word and do appreciate it. And this only inspires um, a, a, an attitude of gratefulness in us just to consider a passage like this. Uh, we look at a passage like this and we say, that's right. This is where I've hung my life. This is where I'm going to live. This is where I find hope. This is where I find meaning. Um, and it inspires deep gratefulness in us. If we understand that the very breath of God that God breathed into Adam in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 is the very same breath that we need for life and godliness today. And for those of you out there who are wondering, like, you know, maybe you're in the first category that I mentioned or the second category, even the current category or the third category. There's a lot of ways to consume the scripture in our day. There's nothing better than just sitting and reading God's word and meditating on it in preparation for sharing it with a community. There, there's no better way to do that. That's what preachers have to do. And preacher, you know, preachers benefit from sermoning more than you guys. I hope you know that. Like we, Jason and I, when we prepare to preach, we benefit from this the most because it, we're the ones having to do the toiling uh, and and the meditating on it in a way that's discernible and helpful uh, to people. There's a lot of ways to consume. The scriptures by reading, meditating, being here in corporate worship, being in community groups, and listening to sermons. There's all kinds of ways out there, and I would just encourage you to do that because I think that by doing so, your appreciation for God's word will only grow. A couple days ago, uh, I was sitting in the kitchen uh, with our, our little one, Abby and I, who's back here. Cannon, you're doing awesome up there, bud. Um, Abby and I, you know, we've got a nine week old, and uh, her name is Kennedy. And we were sitting, I was sitting with her in the kitchen, right? And she was in her little bouncer thing. And um, you know how eight-week-olds are, nine-week-olds are. They just kind of sit there, right? Just kind of sit there. And, you know, they, they understand pain and toil from the, from the moment they were born, right? They come into this world screaming and crying. They get pain. They get, they get all this stuff. They get need, and they cry when they do it, right, or when they experience it. But there comes a moment, like in the life of a little, little baby, where they're starting to at least express feelings of joy, right? And so I was sitting with my little one, and I was sitting, you know, really close, because little ones can't see that far away. I was sitting real close, and I was like looking at her right in the eyes and talking to her. And you know what happened? This biggest smile came across her face, and it, it melted my heart, Right? It just melted my heart. All of the toil, all of the crying that had been done had just been, in a moment, completely erased because she heard the voice of her father and it caused a smile to come upon her. It welled up joy within her. I think that's exactly what God desires for us today. Is that no matter where you are in your life journey, in your faith journey, that when you hear the voice of the father, that you would return to it, and that it would produce this joy in your heart. And you know what that'll do? Make him very, very happy. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that um, you pursued us uh, when we were, were going astray. We thank you that you have chosen to disclose yourself to us, um, though you didn't have to. Um, you gave us everything that we needed, and yet we rebelled against you, and you went on a rescue mission to pursue us. Lord, may we be a church family. May we be people who view your scriptures as being God-breathed, that they would give life to us, that they would bring change, and ultimately, uh, that they would compel us towards good works so that you might be honored and glorified in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.